Hi, my name's Stuart Hastings. I'm a staff specialist anaesthetist at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne and unit coordinator of perioperative management of the cardiac patient included in the Monash University Masters of Perioperative Medicine. The measurement of exercise tolerance for surgery study or METS study was published in The Lancet in June 2018. The findings of which challenge one of the long-standing and fundamental pillars of perioperative risk assessment for major adverse cardiac events in the patient undergoing non-cardiac surgery. Today we're joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Mark Schulman, Staff Specialist Cardiac Anaesthetist at the Alfred and member of the MET study investigation team to talk about this study and a newly published sub-study on which he was the principal investigator. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Stuart. Mark, when we're faced with a patient deemed to have an elevated risk of perioperative major adverse cardiac events based on their revised cardiac risk index, Two of the major societal guidelines place an emphasis on the assessment of the functional capacity to determine the need for cardiac investigation prior to proceeding with surgery. What are some of the problems you see with this strategy? So that's right, Stuart. Both the American and European guidelines use um, the assessment of functional capacity as a pivotal decision-making point as to whether or not you should have further cardiac testing or proceed to surgery. And the specific number that's used as a cutoff for functional assessment is four METs. The problem with that, it seems like a good idea that functional capacity should guide your, your fitness, be a guide to your fitness and whether or not you're fit to proceed to surgery. The problem is there's no agreed method as to how we should measure your functional capacity and what forms of functional capacity are in fact predictive or not predictive for outcomes that we might be interested in. So when the clinician's faced with these patients, what are some of the metrics or measures of measuring functional capacity that we've got available to us? Okay, well, the, the thing that's most commonly done, as you probably know in your own practice, is that physicians, based on their history and examination and meeting the patient, tend to just make a subjective assessment of how, how fit they think the patient is um, without any hard evidence. And that's been shown in previous studies to not be very predictive. Um, the gold standard assessment of functional capacity is cardiopulmonary exercise testing, um, which is a test that's done in a laboratory, usually on a bicycle, um, where uh, a patient's um, oxygen consumption and carbon dioxide production is, is measured as they exercise. Um, other more simple exercise testing uh, is available. Um, that includes things like the six minute walk test or the shuttle walk test or a timed up and go test. But these um, need a lot more, more investigation to, before we know whether they're predictive or not. Mm. There are also um, questionnaires, um, things like the DASI, which is the Duke Activity Status Index, which has been shown to be predictive of um, the results of cardiopulmonary exercise testing. Uh, and then there are biomarkers. There's been a lot of interest re more recently uh, in biomarkers such as NT proband P and troponin, which have both been shown to be predictive of, of mortality in patients with heart failure or cardiac disease, and also been shown in some perioperative studies to be predictive of, of mortality and, and longer-term outcomes. Mm. I'd like to discuss both the biomarkers and um, some of the details of the questionnaire that you mentioned uh, a little bit later. But it, just before we get into some of the nitty-gritty of it, as far as you're concerned, is there any, or as far to your knowledge, is there evidence that these particular metrics might provide more robust data for the clinician when they're actually testing these patients, using them to say predict major adverse cardiac events or death or mortality, et cetera? Sure, so, so prior to the MET study, 
um, there was quite a lot of research that had gone on um, looking at whether cardiopulmonary exercise testing was predictive. And that research goes back um, 30 or more years. Um, a lot of it was done in, in single centres with teams of enthusiasts um, who, who were um, convinced that CPEN was predictive. Um, a lot of these studies were, in fact all of these studies were non-blinded. So these enthusiastic um, clinician researchers would, would perform cardiopulmonary exercise testing and they would know the results and, and um, subsequent treatment the patients received could be, could be based on those results. Mm. Um, but there have been no, no really good big um, cohort studies um, that have been blinded to look at whether or not CPET um, is in fact predictive of, mm. of morbidity or mortality. Mm. And a, a lot of the data, some of it has shown a signal towards predicting mortality, but a lot of it has been uh, shown more to be predictive of, of complications mm. rather than mortality itself. All right. So just with regard to the METS trial, what did it actually seek to investigate? Okay, so the, the stated primary outcome of the METS study um, was to compare f subjective physician assessment to cardiopulmonary exercise testing for 30-day um, mortality and non-fatal myocardial infarction. So, that's, so that was the primary outcome measure. Um, secondary outcome measures included looking at comparing those two things for 12-month mortality mm -hmm. and then comparing another of a, a number of other functional assessments such as the, the DASI, which I mentioned before, mm -hmm. um, and NT ProBMP mm. um, for both 30-day um, mortality, non-fatal myocardial infarction, and 12-month mm. mortality. So this was a prospective cohort study. Can you tell That's us right. the patient group that was included and how the trial was structured? Okay, so as, as you said, um, prospective cohort study um, in Canada, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. Uh, in the end, it enrolled over 1,400 patients. The patients were 40 years of age or older, um, having major non-cardiac surgery, and they had to have one or more um, cardiac, cardiac risk factors. And I think they achieved um, enrolling a reasonably high-risk group. 49% um, of the patients had an arterial line inserted for their surgery, 15% had a central line, and almost 25% ended up going to critical care um, or needing a monitored bed. And I should mm. stress that none of these, none of the anaesthetic management of these patients was stipulated, mm -hmm. and also none of the, the physicians or anaesthetists looking after these patients had any idea what, what the results of the CPET or subjective physician assessment were. Mm -hmm. So that's a really, and it's a really important part of this study. The results were all blinded. So the clinicians providing intraoperative care had no prior knowledge of that That's preoperative right. investigation. That's exactly right. Okay. So the way the study was structured was prior to surgery, um, patients would come to a pre-assessment clinic. The anaesthetist or other preoperative physician that saw them there would, would grade them as having um, um, poor, moderate or good functional capacity based on history and examination. They would perform the cardiopulmonary exercise testing prior to surgery, mm -hmm. they would have blood taken for preoperative troponin and preoperative NT ProBMP and they would complete the DASI survey. Mm -hmm. All of that would happen preoperatively. So you've mentioned the DASI survey a couple of times now. Can mm -hmm. you just describe the constituents of what's involved in that particular survey? Sure. So the DASI survey is a structured questionnaire um, that has, I think it's 12 items that go from questions asking about a very low level of 
functional capacity, so things like performing household activities, dressing, showering. Um, and then as the questions go on, they, they increase the amount of um, functional capacity we require to complete the activities. So, for example, walking around the block, walking up flights of stairs, all the way through to um, strenuous exercise. Mm. If, when done properly, the patient needs to answer every question and then a, a total sum is created. There are points awarded for each um, item that the mm. patient can do. And why was that survey chosen? Were there particular advantages, say, to the DASI survey? Um, I think the, the big advantage to DASI is it's very simple and easy to complete. And also it's been used extensively in the literature before and there are some signals that, that the DASI may be predictive both for um, cardiopulmonary exercise testing um, and for, for some, some evidence that it may be predictive for outcomes. Mm. In fact, um, there's, a, there's actually a formula which can convert your DASI score into a predicted number of METs. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if we were to summarise the findings of the METs trial, what would the take-home messages be that you would disseminate to the readers? Okay, so first of all, looking, looking at the number of events. So um, by 30 days, 28 patients or 2% of the population um, achieved the primary outcome, which was either dying or having a non-fatal myocardial infarction. And by 12 months, 38 patients or 3% of patients were, were dead. And those numbers were a little bit lower than than predicted mm. in the when the protocol was, was made, although they're, they're probably reasonably consistent with current practice for mm. that, that patient group. So I guess the main findings were that um, physician assessment was non-predictive, so it did not predict either the primary or the secondary outcome. This is the subjective, in-clinic, eyeball-type assessment. That's right. So, And that confirms what we thought from previous research. Um, I guess the more surprising finding was um, cardiopulmonary exercise testing was also not predictive of either the primary or secondary outcome measures. And in fact, what probably surprised some people was that the DASI score was the only preoperative test that was predictive of the primary outcome. Mm. And I think that's quite important because if what that means is if we can do a simple questionnaire in the pre-admission clinic, that's the most predictive thing of whether someone's likely to die at 30 days or, or, or a year, in fact, after surgery. And why do you hypothesise that could have occurred? Well, when we're looking at um, uh, measures of functional capacity, the, the cardiopulmonary exercise testing, for example, is very specific in its, in its looking at how the body utilises oxygen, whereas the DASI score um, looks at the patient's entire body function. So it looks at tasks they can or can't do um, and things that they do and don't do in their daily life. Mm. And so it may be a better guide, better holistic guide to, to patient function than mm. a specific exercise test. Mm. And what were the findings with respect to the biomarker measurements? So that was also quite interesting. So the NT-proBMP was found to be predictive of 12-month mortality. And that's in keeping with... Um, previous um, cardiology data that, that's shown that nt probnp is predictive of long-term mortality. Mm. So I guess not a surprising finding. Sure. And you conducted a post-hoc analysis as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yep. So um, it's important that you, you, you do um, classify that as a post-hoc analysis. So any post-hoc analysis has to be treated as, as hypothesis generating and not a primary finding of the study, mm. but nevertheless, um, it was found that cardiopulmonary exercise testing was predictive of increased complications. 
specifically the complications um, that were, were found to be increased were respiratory failure, pneumonia, surgical site infections, unexpected re readmission to critical care unit and reoperation. Mm. So, so but, but I, I guess I should stress that while cardiopulmonary excess testing was predictive of those things, it wasn't predictive of, of long-term death. Mm. So there's not a clear link between having those short-term complications and having long-term mortality. Mm. Um, the other thing that, that uh, was found in post-hoc analysis was that the NT pro-BMP was predictive of death or myocardial injury. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a troponin leak without sign of myocardial infarction. Mm. That's also um, in keeping with previous data, for example, from the vision study, which mm. shows that myocardial injury can be predictive of long-term mortality. Sure. So, I mean, there's a lot of interesting findings there. Before we sort of put all this together for an overall conclusion, I'd like to actually discuss your recent study that's mm -hmm. been published in the BJA using the six-minute walk test to predict disability-free survival after major surgery. Now, this was a sub-study of the METS trial, effectively. Can you tell us a bit about the rationale behind this? Sure. Well, the, the rationale was quite simple, really. We, we basically looked at the protocol of the METS study and thought... Well, it'd be great if cardiopulmonary exercise testing really lives up to its reputation as being the gold standard and is predictive, but it's a very labour-intensive, specialised, expensive test to do. And we thought, wouldn't it be great if another simple, easy-to-perform test, such as the six-minute walk test, was just as predictive? So that, that's what we set about to do. We set about to look at whether the six-minute walk test could be an alternative, a cheap, simple alternative to cardiopulmonary exercise testing. And you actually measured some very different outcomes from the METS trial, didn't you? Can you explain those for us? That's right. So we wanted to use um, what, what are known as patient-centred outcome measures. So these are outcome measures that, that are, are supposed to measure um, outcomes that are of primary importance to the patient. So rather than of primary importance to the physician necessarily. Mm. So things like having a good recovery and things like ha having good functional outcomes or, or not having disability um, in the long term after mm. surgery. Because at the end of the day, when patients have surgery, they have it either cure disease or cure symptoms and they expect to recover well from their surgery mm. and that's what's primarily important to them. Mm, fantastic. So, so we... we um, chose two outcome measures for this study. So we look, wanted to look at 30-day quality of recovery and we wanted to look at 12-month disability as, as measured. And the recovery, I should say, was measured by the Core 15 score, which is a, a well-validated score. And disability was measured by the World Health Organization Disability Assessment Schedule, or HUDAS. Again, a well-validated um, scale to measure disability in surgical patients. Sure. So can you tell us a bit about the analysis and findings of your study? Yeah, sure. So our study cohort in the sub-study, which was mainly in an Australia and New Zealand study, there were some patients also from Canada, we had a total of 574 patients. Similar overall mortality rate to the, to the main MET study of around 3% at 12 months. Um, and 77% of our patients had disability-free survival at 12 months. So that means they were either they were alive and they had a HUDAS score of less than 25% mm. at 12 months, which, which uh, at this stage we take to mean they're, they're relatively free of disability. So um, similarly to the, the MET study, we actually were could only show a poor correlation between the six-minute walk test and either the 
30-day core 15 score mm -hmm. or the 12-month HUDAS score. And again, similarly to the um, findings of the MET study, we found that in fact the DASI survey was the only independent variable that was predictive of 12-month disability-free survival. Fantastic. So how do we put all this together? You've mentioned in combination with, say, the MET study and your study, there are a few different metrics predicting different outcomes. So, you know, the six-minute walk test being perhaps a predictor of one outcome in the long term and the six-minute walk test not being a great predictor, the Darcy perhaps being the best overall. If we were to look at the guidelines, what would your recommendations be? Which tests should the clinician use in the perioperative period? Okay, well, I think it's pretty clear from both the MET study and the sub-study that the DASI score is really the, out of all these tests, is the best test at both predicting uh, mortality, myocardial infarction, and disability-free survival. So both the conventional um, physician-centric measures and also the, the patient-centred outcome measures. Mm -hmm. I think that that's quite clear and irrefutable mm -hmm. evidence. Um, I think we could also say that the NT Pro BMP, as it as it is, is good at predicting 12-month mortality, which which is again an important measure and and an easy test to do. It's a simple blood test. I should point out though that this study wasn't wasn't designed to and didn't provide specific cutoffs for either of those scales. So I can't tell you from this study what number on the DASI score above which you need to send the patient for further testing or, or, or some other kind of interventions. Mm. And, I, and I can't do that for NT program either. Um, I should mention also that while, while the six-minute walk test and CPET weren't predictive in the way they were analysed over this study, as in over a continuous scale, um, we, we did do some secondary um, analysis of of the six-minute walk test, looking looking at it using um, specific cutoffs instead of uh, a continuous scale. So, for example, when we split our population up into three groups, so a, a lowest tertile group or or a group that walk, could only walk less than 435 metres versus the highest tertile group or a group that could walk greater than 510 metres, when, when looking at it in, in that way as two binary predictors, mm. um, in that way, the six-minute walk test was quite predictive of, of new disability, 12-month um, disability-free survival, and in fact, the, um, some of the MET's outcomes. So, and, and in fact, if you, if you were even stricter with it and looked at people who could only walk less than, say, 350 metres, um, it then became 90% sensitive and 73% specific for predicting 12-month mm -hmm. disability. So we didn't design the study in that way, and this is, again, post-hoc analysis, so it needs to be considered hypothesis generating. But it may be that the six-minute walk test can still predict um, disability at 12 months if we use it um, in a more um, specific way. And so based on these findings overall, do you still see a role for CPET in the perioperative period? Um, look, I, I personally don't. It, it may be that CPET, as shown in this study, is predictive of complications. Mm -hmm. But I feel um, there's a couple of reasons why really, I think unless, unless there's some other good data that comes out about CPET to change what this study's shown, mm -hmm. I feel that CPET done in this real world study and blinded um, did not predict any of the important outcome measures we're looking for, including, mm -hmm. I should say, the disability-free survival. It may predict complications, but I'd argue that 
um, predicting complications if they don't lead to long-term problems with mortality or hospital readmission or, or disability, then I'd, pr I'd, I'd probably argue that's, that's possibly a less important outcome. Mm -hmm. And in any case, we've shown that for all outcome measures, the six-minute walk test was as good, if not better, than CPAT at predicting those outcomes. Mm -hmm. So if, you, if you're going to use an exercise test, and we can show that exercise tests are predictive and add benefit over the simple test like DASI NT, NT ProBMP, then why not use the simple cheap test rather than the mm. expensive complicated test? Mm. Do you think that any of these metrics could be used in fact to uh, deny in inverted commas a patient surgery? That is to say they're too high risk to proceed with their operation and there should be other measures sought for their ongoing care? No, not per se. I mean, the difference between research and individual patient practice is that um, when you see an individual patient, I think all of these tests are used, can be used to, to guide shared decision making between the patient and their phys perioperative physician or surgeon. So I think these things um, help guide management, but they also help the decision to whether or not a patient should have surgery. Now, there are going to be some patients for whom um, if they're presented with a scenario where their surgery is high risk and they may well have a poor outcome, there are some patients for whom they'll say, oh, look, there's no way I'd undergo that. Um, there might be patients who've been battling chronic health conditions for a long time, mm. for example. Mm. There'll be other patients who, who may have values and goals um, that are consistent with you know, a mindset where they'll do, un undertake almost any risk if they can, if there's a chance of improved quality of life or, or improved length of life, they may want to get to a, a child's wedding or, or, a, or an overseas trip that they've been planning or some other, some other goal. Um, so I think, no, I think these things um, should guide shared decision making and guide therapy, but I don't, I don't think we could, there'll be, ever be a single cutoff which, which enables us to say that no, if you're, if you're beyond this threshold, we're going to definitely deny surgery to you. Mm. I think that needs to be an individual patient decision based on you know, a holistic history and mm. examination. Mm. I think you touched a bit on this before, but just um, to maybe specify uh, in detail, why do you think the Darcy score has performed so well across two studies here? Yeah, so as, as we sort of alluded to before, Darcy is a, a really holistic um, questionnaire which really looks at all parts of, of patients um, functional capacity so it looks at what they do on a daily basis so I guess based on that it's it's, it's an assessment of, of their, their fitness because if they can't for example um, perform strenuous sports or do gardening then they'll be scored down from that so we do get fitness um, but we also got just get just general ability to care for themselves and, and function as, as, a, as a human being. And so that's why it's, it's not surprising from that point of view that it may predict disability because it really is assessment of overall function. Um, I, I was a little bit more surprised that it's so predictive of mortality as well. Mm. But I guess if, if you reflect on it, a, a person with, if, if you see a patient that's got really poor function and on, on, on several levels, can't, can't look after themselves on a daily basis. You see that kind of patient, it's probably not surprising that they've got an increased risk of dying in the next 12 months. Mm, sure. 
We mentioned that two studies are using uh, METS as a, not the study, the actual metric uh, of, as a sort of decision point in uh, discussing further testing. Um, we've seen the Canadian guidelines move to embrace uh, basically biomarker assessment at the exclusion of uh, other forms of functional assessment. What are your thoughts on, on this? Yeah, look, I think, I think that's perhaps um, a slightly simplistic approach. I mean, I think, I think when, you, when you're making these decisions about what things to measure, you have to think about the outcomes that you're trying to predict. So if you're only trying to predict 12-month mortality, then I guess it's quite reasonable to just measure troponin and NT pro-BMP. But I would argue that if you really, you know, patient care these days needs to be patient-centred, it needs to reflect um, the goals patients have. And if you, if you want to do preoperative testing that measures what a patient's life is going to be like 12 months after surgery, then I don't think just measuring biomarkers is going to help us predict that. I think using things like the DASI score, which has been shown to predict 12-month disability-free survival, I think you need to do something like that as well. Um, and I really don't see a downside. It's such a quick, simple, easy test to do. Um, and I think, you know, when, when you're looking at, at mortality as a measure, I'm sure for most patients mortality is important, but we've all met the patient in clinic who says, look, I'm not too fussed if, if I die. What I don't want is to have mm. disability after mm. surgery. And I think we have, to meet, we have to use things that can predict that. Fantastic. So to come to the conclusion here, for the perioperative clinician with a patient over 40 years of age, a number of cardiac risk factors having elective major non-cardiac surgery, how do you feel we should move forward based on the outcomes of these studies? Sure. So... In answering that question, I just want to emphasise the fact that, again, that we don't have specific cutoffs that can provide specific guidelines right now. But I think, in my mind, there's no doubt that, that we need to incorporate the, the DASI score and possibly biomarkers as screening tools in the preoperative assessment clinic to, to, to enable us to stratify um, patient risk. It may be that we then add an exercise test such as a six-minute walk test. That's a simple, easy test. If it's if future evidence comes out that the addition of that using specific cutoffs can improve the predictive ability of the two other screening tests. Mm. But I think, you know, I really want to emphasise what I said before, which is that once we've got all that data, that then should be used to help, number one, shared care decision-making to, to decide whether or not surgery should go ahead but then also I think I think a lot of other research needs to happen um, to look at once we've categorized patients into high risk or not are there other interventions that can help lower that risk and that that's obviously the next step in this story so things like if we institute a package of care that includes for example prehabilitation exercise um, dietary modification um, and then um, perioperative interventions, including, for example, a perioperative medical round or high dependency or, or intensive care after surgery, and then probably increased surveillance post-discharge to try and prevent, um, you know, um, patients being readmitted into hospital again later and having complications as they leave hospital. I think, I think anything we do is going to need to be a package of things like that to, to try and prevent long-term disability. Mark, this study uh, comprised part of your ongoing PhD. Where's your further work headed in this sphere at the moment? Um, okay, so my, my PhD and, and research focuses 
around patient-centered outcome measures. Um, one of the, the big things I'm doing at the moment is, is a large um, registry style project at the Alfred um, called the MITRE study. And um, we'll hope to expand that to other centres in the future. But we're looking at, at elderly patients, so patients 70 years of age or older, looking at, at um, the disability they develop after surgery, in the long term after surgery. And we, we're trying to look at what, what risk factors may lead to that disability. So we're collecting lots of preoperative, intraoperative and postoperative data, and we're going to try and work out what things lead to um, postoperative disability. We also want to look at several other quite specific patient groups. Um, for example, I'm, I'm quite interested in patients have, who are having transplants or um, mechanical assist devices placed. They're a high-risk patient group um, where we could argue a lot of these um, high-risk interventions such as transplant and ventricular assist devices uh, are instituted um, at, at great cost to the patient and the community in order to provide these patients with increased longevity but also an increased quality of life. So I think it's important that we're measuring those things in those patients. So that's, that's one area of interest of mine. But also there, I think there are many other groups including the elderly but other patient groups where it's important to, to quantify just how much disability they do have but also what, what, what things we can do to change that or predict that. Um, and I guess the other thing I'm interested in is also providing some benchmarking data um, for, for hospitals. So what are normal rates of disability um, for different operations for different kind of patients? And that, as well as being able to provide benchmarking for audit, hopefully that'll help, again, as I said before, physicians and patients have conversations that, that help patients to make decisions about whether or not surgery is the right thing for them. Mm. Fantastic. Well, Mark, we really appreciate your time and sensational insights into what are certainly two landmark studies in the area of perioperative care. And uh, we look forward to hearing the outcomes of your future work. Thanks, Stuart, and thanks for taking the time to chat today.